Good morning, church. It's an awesome privilege, opportunity, and indeed an awesome responsibility to stand before you today. And I am humbled by the experience. I'm also thankful to Gary for his leadership of the praise team this morning and, and to Dick and Greg and Joanne and Cindy. What wonderful music we have. It's very inspiring. I had a hard time to keep from crying while they were singing. How often do you hear a sermon started with a song? A scripture song, no less. See, the lyrics were by God, but the tune was by a lady named Bodil Morris. Bodil is the wife of Pastor Dr. Derek Morris, whom some of you are probably familiar with. Dr. Morris was the uh, lead pastor at the Forest Lake Church in Apopka, Florida, just outside of Orlando for many years. I even saw him once in that church. I was there. I've seen him in several camp meetings. Nine years ago, he moved to Silver Spring, Maryland, and uh, took on a job at Hope Channel TV. He is now the president of Hope Channel TV. Probably, I didn't know that until I started preparing for this sermon. Um, at any rate, Pastor Morris has written a book called The Radical Prayer. And um, maybe some of you have read it. I don't know. Mary Maxson had it for a while. I I lend it to her for her Bible study group, so some of you may have participated in that. Um, but Pastor Morris wrote six sermons based on Luke chapter 10. And that's our subject today is Luke chapter 10. Now, I want to apologize to you a little bit because Garrison spoke last week on chapter 11. And so you might wonder why we took it out of order, and that's my fault. Because I asked Garrison, they had us all scheduled, Garrison and then me, and I had me down for, for chapter 11. And I wanted to use chapter 10 because it provides a framework for what I'm going to share with you this morning. So I asked Garrison to swap with me, and he graciously did so, and he did a wonderful job last week with chapter 11. Um, at Hope Channel, Dr. Morris uh, hosts a one-hour uh, presentation of the week's uh, um, quarterly study, Sabbath school study. It's called Hope Sabbath School. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I would hope, yeah, I see some hands, good. Um, I would hope that some of you may even be able to use it in your uh, preparation for Sabbath school. It's, uh, he does it about six times during the week. He covers it the week before the actual lesson in the study. You know, we have a worldwide quarterly with a conventional lesson every week uh, for all churches. And there are a lot of churches that don't have as much talent as we have in this church or as, much, or as many people. And as a result, they, they need some help in preparing their lessons. And so this Hope Sabbath school has taken on the chore of being able to present that. 
and he does a wonderful job. Bodell, his wife, writes scripture songs. She's written over 500 of them. And um, uh, she writes one for every sermon series that Dr. Morris preaches. She's quite talented. So anyway, with that as a preference, I would like to begin this morning with prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come together for the purpose of worship, study, prayer, song, and fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for being in our midst this morning. You have already moved our hearts closer to you. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to send your spirit here. Hide me behind your spirit that your name might be glorified by the words that I use. May they come directly from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love going to sea. I um, spent 32 years in the Navy, and I was on six ships in the first 20 years. Three of them I commanded as the commanding officer. This was my second command. Uh, it's the USS Courtney Destroyer Escort 1021. It was home ported in Naples, Italy. And we patrolled the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic. Um, it was a special ship for me. My first ship was a minesweeper. Minesweeper Ocean 468, the USS Rival. Uh, that was my first command, and uh, had about 90 souls on board. This ship had about 220 souls on board. Uh, you'll notice there's a gun mount on the front, but on the fantail of the ship, which is the back end of the ship, um, you'll see a, a hut back there. They had removed the two gun mounts when I went on board, and they put an electronic surveillance hut back there. We had a towed array sonar subsystem, and uh, we also had uh, electronics intelligence team. And it was about a year after the Pueblo was captured by the North Koreans for electronics intelligence gathering in, uh, right off the coast of North Korea. And here we were in the Mediterranean tracking Russian submarines and gathering electronic intelligence from various uh, Soviet bloc countries. And uh, it was an interesting time. I wish I had time to give you some of the sea stories from that. Uh, it was quite interesting tour, two years, that I lived in Naples. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time. My third ship was the USS Talbot, which was a guided missile destroyer. Um, had about 400, nearly 400 people on board. It was a large ship. At any rate, as I said, I love going to sea. I, um, the sea is, has, a, has a personality of its own. You know, it can be smooth as glass, or it can be rough, terribly rough. Um, 
when it's smooth and the, at night and the stars and the moon are out and you're out in the middle of the ocean and you can't see anything else except the stars and the moon. It's very reflective, reflexive, I should say. Very quiet, peaceful, a good time for prayer and, and reflection with God as to what's going on in your life. But the uh, sea can also be very terrible, violent. I've seen 50-foot waves, 50 feet. The height of eye on this ship when you're on the bridge. I don't know if this will show up or not. No, it doesn't see it. But on the height of where the windows are in the front, that's where the bridge is, and the height of eye is about 40 feet above the ocean. And I've been in the North Atlantic on that ship when the waves were 50 feet high and you look up at the tops of them and you wonder what God has in mind for you. <laughs> yes. Um, Gwen and I just returned from a 17-day cruise around New Zealand and southern part of Australia, and I'm glad we didn't see any 50-foot waves there. <laughs> anyway, I want to tell you a little bit about my life this morning. Um, and I'm going to use Luke 10, especially verses 1 through 3, to uh, frame, as a framework for my testimony, which I'm going to share, some of, which, some of my testimony of which I'm going to share with you. So let's begin this morning with uh, Luke verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. And then he said to them, The harvest truly is great. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Just like the words of the song that we started with. He said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What does it mean, the harvest? The harvest is great. What is the harvest? What are we talking about when he says the harvest is great? Well, the Bible says that the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Wow. It further says in chapter 14 of Revelation, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now clearly, he's, here he's uh, indicating that the harvest refers to the end of time. However, I think harvest actually has two meanings in Bible metaphor. Um, it, it refers to the end of the world as we know it, but Jesus also uses the metaphor of the harvest. When you look back at Luke chapter 10, verse 1, to refer to present day missionary endeavors. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also 
and sent them two by two into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So clearly in this instance, he's not talking about the end of the world. He was talking about that time in which he was living. And we can take that parable and advance it forward to the day in which we live. The end of the world as we know it comes much later than today, hopefully. Not for some of us, maybe, but for a lot of us, maybe. And the church's primary mission in this day and age is to lead men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We, we learn that in Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, don't we? Where it says, go ye therefore into the world and make disciples. That's our charter. That's what we're supposed to do, is to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So in the present harvest, Jesus uses people, not angels, to reap. How are we doing in that regard? How are we doing as a worldwide church in leading people to Jesus Christ? Well, I've been in the church now for about 40 years, a little over. And... uh, The church has grown from 4 million when I joined it to 25 million now, according to some figures. I don't know if that's, I don't know how they account for apostasies and death and things like that in figuring out what the growth of the church is, but they say we have 25 million now. Um, I don't know how we're doing as a church in paradise. Are we leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, don't get me wrong here. I'm not going to cast any stones here. I'm, I'm uh, very proud of the work we do in this church. We have a lot of really wonderful programs. And we don't live in an atmosphere of Africa where there's a lot of people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. We live in a society where it's not very popular sometimes to believe in Jesus Christ. So it's difficult to reach people with a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we choose to do it here in this church for the most part by reaching out to help people. We have our food for friends and our community services, our love paradise. We have a lot of programs, cooking schools, and things like that. We reach out in a mighty way into this community. So I'm not at all throwing any darts at the church this morning for our failure to uh, win a lot of souls, new souls, to Jesus Christ because we live in a society where maybe isn't possible to do as well as they do in some other places. But... Um, I just wanted to put this thought in your mind of what our mission is here. Um, We'll come back to it in a little bit. I'd like to go on with my story now. Wow. 
That's a cute kid, isn't it? I wonder what happened. <laughs> if you saw this picture of me when I was about three or four, you might have guessed that I was born to be a sailor with a love for the sea. Really, it isn't so. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a long way from the ocean, and I never had anyone in my family in the Navy until I joined. So um, um, I was born in Atlanta a long time ago. And um, my parents and I moved to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee when I was about six months old only, and, and then to Columbia, South Carolina when I was four. Um, and that explains why sometimes you'll hear Mary Maxson's accent come out a little bit when I'm talking. Um, but uh, my grandparents on both my mother and my father's side were Methodist. They were strong Methodists. As the saying goes, they were at the church every time the door opened. And uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was instrumental in building the uh, Methodist Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. So they were very active in the church. My parents, on the other hand, not so much. They were Methodists, and they went to church every Christmas and every Easter, whether they needed to or not. And, um, but I don't fault them much for that, because they did introduce me to Jesus, and they encouraged my love for him, and they helped me develop a very close relationship with him. They insisted that I go to Sunday school and church every week. And we only lived in Columbia. I say we, we moved there when I was four. We only lived in Columbia um, about a half a block from the Methodist church. And I could walk through my neighbor's backyard and be at the church. So when I was five and six years old, I was going to church every week, Sunday school and church. I developed a love for Jesus that you wouldn't believe. I had a Sunday school teacher who was in love with Jesus. He was a wonderful man, and he talked about Jesus all the time. And he taught me a lot about Jesus. His name was Taylor, not Bob Taylor, but his name was Taylor. And he, was, he became a really good friend of mine. I listened to him every week, and he gave me a love for Jesus that wouldn't quit. Um, well, when I was 11, I got really sick. I had a high fever. My body was racked with pain. I was stiff. I couldn't hardly move. And I just felt horrible. I felt like I was going to die. 11 years old. My parents called a doctor. And guess what? His name was Miller. Not Jim Miller, but it was Miller. 
And the doctor made house calls in those days. You hear that, doctors? House calls. Some of you might remember that. But uh, the doctor came to the house about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, after his office hours, I would suppose. And he took my temperature, and like I say, it was 105 or 106. He uh, took my blood pressure and examined me from head to toe. He, uh, my, my arms and legs hurt, and he tried to move them, and they were stiff, and I was, I was really a sick boy. And uh, after he finished his examination, he turned to my parents, and he said to them, I've seen this before, and he's coming down with polio, and uh, there's nothing that we know to do to stop it. This was in 1947, folks. The Salk vaccine didn't come along until the early 50s. And the Salk vaccine practically wiped out polio. But at that time, it was a dread disease. I was scared to death. I had friends in school who were in braces from their knees down or in a wheelchair who had polio, and I was scared to death. I thought I was going to be stricken with polio. Well, I did the only thing that I knew to do at that time, and you know what that was. I started praying, and I prayed to Jesus. And I don't know whether it was the high temperature or the pain or what that caused me to have hallucinations or be delirious or whatever. But as I was praying, I saw Jesus Christ standing at the foot of my bed. And I was praying to him and I was saying, please, Jesus, help me. Heal me. And I will serve and love you all of my life. That is a radical prayer, folks. That is a radical prayer. Within a minute, maybe it was two, but within a very short period of time, my fever broke. And I felt the fever and the pain and the discomfort wash out of my body just like water running over you in a shower. My pajamas were soaking wet from the fever just exploding out of my body. And I said, thank you, Jesus. And my parents heard that from the other room. And they brought the doctor back in the room. And they said, what's happening? And I said, Jesus has healed me. And the doctor came over and he examined me again. He took my temperature. He took my blood pressure. He moved my arms and my legs. And by this time, I was sitting up on the edge of the bed. And when he finished his examination... 
He turned and looked at my parents. And he said, I don't understand this. I've never seen this before. He said, he is perfectly normal. Well, I've never had any residual problem from that episode the rest of my life. And I want to say to you today that I have remained true to my promise. I have served Jesus and loved him all of my life to today. He is my Savior. I have remained true to the radical promise I made. I have loved and served him all of my life. However, there's always a but in there. However, life is not consistent. Life is not a constant. Life isn't even fair. And the devil is working. Satan is out there working. There are periods in my life where my love and my service to Jesus weren't as strong as they were at some t previous time. A time when I haven't diligently applied all my efforts to serving him. Why is that? Why is it that we seem to fluctuate, oscillate, seesaw up and down in our Christian commitment? Do you have that problem? Does that happen for you? Sometimes you feel strong and ready to take on the world, and other times you're not so sure. You're not exactly sure where your faith is. Let's go back to our text for this morning. And let's talk about that a little bit. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. How many of us are laborers for Jesus Christ? How many of us are supposed to be laborers for Jesus Christ? Everyone. All of us. Right? We are all called to be laborers for Jesus Christ. So what's the problem? If you go on to the rest of that verse, it says, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into, the har into his harvest. Why is he calling for more laborers? Is it because we seem to fluctuate and oscillate? and seesaw up and down in our commitment? We're all called to be laborers in God's kingdom. But some of the laborers are not laboring. That's a problem for God. Some of his laborers are not laboring. That's why he calls for more laborers. In verse 3, says, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. What is a lamb, metaphorically? 
Is a lamb strong and bold? No, a lamb is meek, weak, sometimes indecisive. So he sends us out as lambs among wolves. Wolves are ferocious. They eat lambs. What are some of the wolves that get in our way of serving God? Well, I like to put them in two categories. There's external wolves and there's internal wolves. I would categorize external wolves as being those things over which we have little or no control. Things like earthquakes, natural disaster, fire. Some people in this congregation have experienced that. Flood. All sorts of natural disasters. Um, Things over which we have almost no control. And Satan has a hand in providing those too. And then there's internal wolves. And I think they're the greater problem here. They're the greater problem for most of us. Internal wolves are those things over which we have control. But we choose not to serve or not to do the things we're supposed to do. Things like busyness, where we're so busy we don't have time to do our devotions. We don't have time to do our Bible study. We don't have time to visit our neighbors or help our friends. We um, get distracted. We are easily distracted by things that sometimes we value more than our relationship with Jesus. Mm. Things like playing sports, perhaps, golf, ouch. (laughs) Surfing, scuba diving, off-roading, I can name a hundred of things that are fun things to do. But it's a problem if they get in the way of our commitment to Jesus. We get lazy. We get apathetic. We are discouraged. We let our personal lives distract us from our mission particularly if we are experiencing some close-at-hand difficulties, things like problems in the family, problems at work, health problems, marital problems. These are a number, there are a number of situations that cause us to back off from our spiritual commitments. I'm old enough to have experienced some of these, and I'll tell you about just one. I'd like to go back to my journey. After my miraculous healing, remember I was 11, 
Of course, I was on fire for Jesus. Boy, was I ever on fire. Jesus healed me, and I loved him. I became a little disenchanted with the Methodist church because I had some Baptist friends who I thought were more spiritual. And so I started going to the Baptist church. I joined the Royal Ambassadors, same as Pathfinders here. I went to Sunday school and church every Sunday and Baptist training union on Sunday night, prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. I joined Youth for Christ, similar to GYC. It was a non-denominational young people's Christian organization. I even played my trumpet at one of the regional conferences uh, that was held there in Columbia. At the age of 18, I was baptized again because I had been baptized in the Methodist church by sprinkling. And of course, the Baptists didn't accept that. So I was baptized by immersion at the age of 18 in the Baptist church. And uh, I met at the age of 21, I met and married a Baptist girl. And that marriage was a mistake right from the beginning. We had two girls, and I'm going back to see them in about three weeks. We're going back to South Carolina. I'm going to get to see my girls again. I don't see them very often. I love them dearly. But my marriage was a wreck. We were married for a long time, 16 years, but I was at sea most of that time, so... I did not really, um, I should have been divorced much earlier. Should have never gotten married, actually. Um, we finally separated in 1972 and divorced. And uh, I don't have to tell you that over that period of 16 years, particularly the last seven or eight years of that marriage, my faith and my zeal. I still loved Jesus. I still served him. I was a deacon in the church, and I taught Sunday school. I was still going through the motions, as some of us are. But I wasn't as avid as I had been, and I was pretty beaten down. And I actually stopped going to church when my divorce was final. Um, I was divorced upon the recommendation of a Baptist pastor. <laughs> That's an interesting story in itself, but I will refrain from going into detail. But uh, I uh, suffice it to say that I was at a low point in my life. I was down. And uh, I wasn't working at my religion, wasn't tithing. I was consumed by my problems. I was distracted. In 1974, 
I met a beautiful lady named Martha Cook. A lot of you know her. We were married for 40 years. She was a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. Ellen White attended a camp meeting on her great-grandmother's farm in Ohio. That's how long that family goes back into Adventism. She was a wonderful person. She was a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist who had, in the 10 or 12 years previous to my meeting her, she had uh, been teaching in the Department of Defense Overseas School System uh, in Okinawa and Germany and France and, and ultimately in Cuba. I met her on an Iranian destroyer in Grand Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And that's another story. <laughs> I have a lot of them. We got married in 1975. And uh, we learned very quickly. She had had a failed marriage previously as well. And... Uh, we learned very quickly that we needed to have something else in our lives besides just us. And we needed Jesus in our lives. And so we started attending the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Fall River Mills, Massachusetts. We were in Newport, but Newport didn't have a church in that time. And um, Suffice it to say, I'm not going to go into details of the next 40 years, but I'll tell you that we spent 40 years of dedicated service to our Lord and Savior. She was a wonderful, wonderful wife, and we both served our Lord very faithfully. I think Scotty has a really good opinion of Marty. Isn't that right, Scotty? Well... She passed in 2014, and the Lord knew that I needed another partner. And he personally orchestrated my meeting this young lady over here named Gwen Flores. And um, Gwen was raised a Mormon, left the church when she was about 20 because she was disenchanted with the message. She never saw it lived in her family. And uh, I'm happy to say that she is now a baptized Seventh-day Adventist. In 2015, she was baptized. And she still had a love for Jesus. And this church loved her into it. And I want to say thank you to this church for what you did for her because you are primarily responsible along with Jesus for bringing her into this message. It was her decision. I told her I would never ask her to be a Seventh-day Adventist, and I never did. 
this church brought her in. Now, why do I tell you all of this? What's the point? Well, I've been asked to share on a number of occasions my testimony because it is pretty dramatic, particularly my conversion. And I have a lot of good stories for the 40 years that I spent with Marty. But um, we'll cover those some other time. I would just like to say that um, I've now shared my testimony with you. It's pretty dramatic, I agree. But I'll tell you, like Ellen White says when she writes about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, she said, once you have a vision of Jesus, it never leaves you. And that's so true. I can see him standing there today just like it was when I was 11. But the main reason I share some of this with you today is that it illustrates a little problem that we've come to realize here in our church in the recent few months. We have had a wonderful pastoral staff for the past 13 years. Efficient, dedicated, worked hard. We've sometimes even been overstaffed because we had five instead of the four we were allotted. And we've had other pastors, retired, that were working in the church as well. So we've had an abundance of pastoral help. And we've become what I call pastoral dependent. We have depended on the pastors for everything. And what we have discovered in the last couple of months since Ben and Mary left is that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And two pastors can't do it all. We've got two wonderful pastors, but they can't do it all. It falls to us to be laborers. We don't want to be laborers that aren't laboring. We want to be laborers. I'll give you one example. Our church clerk left a few weeks ago. And we needed a new church clerk. It's about two to five hours a week of work. Should be done on a volunteer basis. We called nine people and asked them if they would be willing to do that job. Zero. Not one. We've had to give those responsibilities to our paid staff. It's just an example. Again, I'm not faulting us. I'm as guilty as any of you. But we need to be laborers in the church. We need to help out. We need to be willing to be willing. We've become sort of distracted, lazy, and maybe even apathetic in some cases. We need to refocus. We need to rededicate ourselves. We need to become proactive. We need to look for things to do and do them. 
we need to make a radical prayer commitment. What do I mean by a radical prayer commitment? Well, this is the radical prayer. Lord of the harvest, I earnestly beg you to throw out laborers into your harvest. And you have my permission to begin with me. That's the prayer we should be praying. And I ask you to take this home today and pray this prayer this week. Lord of the harvest, I earnestly beg you to throw out laborers into your harvest and you have my permission to begin with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are once again grateful this morning for the opportunity on this beautiful Sabbath day to come together for worship and prayer and song and Lord to fellowship one with another. Give us hearts that search for you. Help us to seek and find you and to serve you with all of our hearts. Help us as we go forward from this point to be more willing to be willing to work not only in the community, but in our church. And we thank you for hearing our prayers. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.